particularly for those of you who are online, I have to thank you, everybody who's here too, uh, on site. But online or on site, I'm really glad you decided to uh, take part in our worship celebration. And uh, I'm looking forward to what's about to happen. Fasten your seatbelts. I don't know what's going to happen yet. I know what I have thought about, but we'll just see. Hey, humans, if you haven't noticed this, uh, I'm about to tell you something. Humans divide uh, the world into two groups, us and them. Us and them. We even write songs about it. I was going to sing it, but I won't. <laughs> you and me against the world. Sometimes it seems like you and me against the world. And for all the times we've cried, I've always felt that God was on our side. That, ladies and gentlemen, on site or online, that is a summary of human history and prehistory. Us, versus them, and thankfully the God, God's forces of nature, whatever we may believe in, is on our side. It's us against them, but at least God's on our side. That's the way it is. It's always been that way, for as long as we can remember. Humans in the first century world divided the world into two groups as well. Depending on which group of people you were talking to, it was different. Uh, the Greeks, who had ruled the world long before the Romans, divided the world into two groups, Greeks and barbarians. The Greeks were the civilized cultured people, and then there were the rest of the world, the barbarians. Uh, for the Romans, who ruled the world in the days of Jesus and Peter and John and Paul, the Romans, there were two groups of people. There were the citizens of the empire, and there was everybody that the citizens of the empire looked down on because Caesar ruled everybody else for the citizens. But there was a different division of the world that the first century followers of Jesus had to deal with. It shows up frequently in the letters and the history of, of the New Testament. The Jews divided the world into two groups. As well, there were the Jews and the rest. They referred to the rest of the world sometimes as the nations, sometimes as Gentiles, and sometimes as the Greeks, because as far as they were concerned, everybody else spoke Greek, which isn't too far from the truth, because Greek was like, had become like the universal language of trade. Almost like English today. 
everybody in the world needs to know some English to do business, almost. That's kind of the same way it was with Greek. Everybody had to know at least a little bit of Greek so that they could do business. If they were going to do business with people from other countries. So that was the way the Jews broke things down. It was us versus the Gentiles or the Greeks or those other people. Because, you see, the reason it became a problem for the first century followers of Jesus is, well, the first followers of Jesus were all Jews. All 12 disciples, there were 12 disciples. Jesus called to them. Some of you know the song. Some of you are going to sing it for the rest of the hour. It's okay. I did that on purpose. Um, those first 12 disciples were all Jews. The 120 people that talk, that's talk, that are talked about in the first chapter of Acts who were praying for the, day, the Holy Spirit to come before the day of Pentecost, all of them were Jews. There were 3,000 people who were added to their number at the day of Pentecost when Peter preached after the Holy Spirit came. All 3,000 of those people were Jews. When the Lord added to their number daily those people who believed in Jesus, those people who were believing were Jews. And they were all living in Jerusalem until persecution broke out. Funny thing about persecution, people tend to want to get away from that. I'm not saying I blame them, but it's what happens. Um, but the funny thing was, many of those people who left Jerusalem, those Jewish people who left Jerusalem, went to the Jewish people in the countryside. They went to their Jewish friends and, and neighbors, people, the family members that they knew in the countryside. They were still hanging with us. They're us. But there was a man named Philip who was, well, we're going to call him a board member. He wasn't one of the apostles. Uh, the closest thing we can come to, I think, in our church culture these days is board member. Some churches call them deacons, but same kind of thing. Philip went to the neighboring city of Samaria. The Samaritans were not really Jews. They were part Jew. I'm trying to stay away from that word. <laughs> they had, their ancestors had intermingled and intermarried with uh, other ethnic groups. And the Jews of that day avoided them like the plague. And they liked them about as much as the plague. Um, well, okay, just they hated them. I mean, they, they didn't like them. They liked Samaritans less than they liked Gentiles. And that was bad. Um, but the interesting thing is about Jesus, the very first time he tells anybody that he's the Messiah, he tells a Samaritan woman. There goes Jesus breaking all the rules. 
First of all, you talk to a woman. Men didn't do that in public. Not good men. And then he had to pick a Samaritan woman to talk to. He broke all the rules. So Philip goes to Samaria and he arrives and he preaches about Jesus and the Samaritans believe in Jesus and he baptizes them and the apostles in Jerusalem hear about this and they go, boy, that's strange. So we better send Peter and John down there to find out what's going on. And Peter and John go to Samaria and when they see what's going on, they pray for the Samaritans and the Holy Spirit comes on the Samaritans and fills them and works in them. They receive the Holy Spirit. So all of a sudden, oh, wow. Now we have Samaritans in the church. <laughs> Our us just got bigger. Our us is Jews and Samaritans. Who would have ever thought that would happen? And afterwards, the Holy Spirit sent Philip to... To the road down going south out of Jerusalem and to an Ethiopian eunuch. For those of us who aren't used to the custom to the word eunuch, he had been surgically sterilized. We do that to our dogs to reduce the pet population. Are you following me? Okay. That disqualified him for worship in the temple. He could not go into the temple as a eunuch. But it did not disqualify him for faith in Jesus. And he believed in Jesus and Philip baptized the African eunuch on the spot. And now all of a sudden, the us includes Jews, Samaritans, and African eunuchs. What is God up to? Now I'm going to allow you, I'm going to ask you to allow me to introduce you to the two human, main human characters in the next stage of the expansion of God's kingdom family that we're going to be looking at today. The first is Cornelius. He was a Roman army officer stationed in the city of, or the town, uh, when we say city, we think, you know, Detroit. Um, we're talking more about the size of maybe Bay City. A small city kind of thing. Um, on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, the little town of Caesarea, he was called by Luke, the author of Acts, a devout and God-fearing man. Probably means that he was a, that he belonged to a group of Gentiles that were called by the Jews God-fearers. These were Gentiles who who worshiped the God of Israel. They believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They worshiped him. They probably even obeyed many of the laws of Moses, but they just didn't want to go the final step to be circumcised in order to become fully converted to Judaism. As Cornelius was having his daily prayer time, 
an angel delivered a message from God to Cornelius. And, and God said to Cornelius, send for Peter. He's in the town of Joppa. Cornelius, that, that's all that he had. An angel says, do this, and he did it. He got some men together, sent for Peter. It took them a couple of days to get there, but as they're approaching Joppa, Peter is hungry. It's about noon, and he goes up on the roof while his hosts are fixing him uh, lunch, and while he's there, he has a vision. Three times he has this vision, and in each of these, each time in the vision, he hears the Lord say to him, what God has made clean, you must not consider unclean. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is planning something. He's planning to span the gap between Jews and Gentiles. tells us in Acts chapter 10, while Peter was still thinking about the vision and what on earth could this possibly mean, the Holy Spirit says to him, since you're thinking and wondering what this means, Peter, here's a concrete application. Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs, and don't hesitate to go with them. Even the Holy Spirit can occasionally do that little alliteration thing, three G's. Get up, go downstairs, go with them. I sent them. So Peter did. The next morning, after hosting them, by the way, Peter was breaking rules. Jews don't do that with Gentiles. But Peter and some of his Jewish Christian friends, Jewish believing friends, departed with these men. And they took, made the trip, took a couple days, and they made the trip to Cornelius's house. And by the time they got there, the house was packed full of people. And Peter says to them, this is the way he says hello. I'm going to read it word for word. Imagine somebody you've never met comes to your house because you invited them to come to your house because God told you to invite them to come to your house. And they said, this is what they say. They don't even bother saying hello. They just start with, you know, it is forbidden for a Jewish man to associate or visit a foreigner. But God, those are all powerful words. I love them when they show up in the Bible. He, he goes, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person common or unclean. That's why I came without any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, why did you send for me? 
And Cornelius told Peter about the angel's message, and he says, now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to say to us. So you have these two guys, Peter and Cornelius. They're looking at each other going, okay. Peter says, God told me to come and see you. Cornelius said, God told me to have you come. We're ready. Talk. We're in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. This is what happened. Peter started speaking. I now truly understand that God does not show favoritism in dealing with people, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is welcomed before him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John announced with respect to Jesus from Nazareth that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of all these things he did both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up. There are those two words again. But God, God raised him up on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us, the witnesses God had already chosen, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to warn them that he is the one appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. About him all the prophets testify that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that's, that's a way of saying the Jewish followers of Jesus, who had accompanied Peter, were greatly astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, no one can withhold the water for these people to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? So he gave orders to have them baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for several days, which, by the way, he did. And by the way, when he got back to Jerusalem, he was in trouble. But that's another story. We'll talk about that later. So I got to thinking as I was looking at that, when, you know, when the preacher starts thinking that you might get, there, there might be some problems coming up. Uh, so here we go. What, what do we say, what do we say to others to share the gospel with them? I mean, what would you say to someone who said, 
Tell me everything the Lord has commanded you to say to me. Now, there's no time for you to call a pastor or to call a board member or a Sunday school teacher or somebody else to come and rescue you from this dilemma. What are you going to say? Tell me whatever the Lord has commanded you to say. Well, here's the good news. The gospel message is not long, detailed, and complicated. Jesus is the gospel. So simply tell his story. That's what Peter did. Jesus is the gospel, so tell his story. Peter's message had two points. If you, want, if, if you outline his, his sermon, sermon, we were really short. His sermon had two points. Jesus then and Jesus now. Jesus then. God sent him and showed his approval on Jesus by the miracles and good deeds Jesus did. And humans crucified him. Killed him and buried him. Jesus now. But God raised him from the dead and he is Lord of all. He's the boss, the king of kings. I like the way Peter starts. He just identifies himself as somebody who's still learning. He is, by the way, the lead apostle. He, you know, this is the one that when he confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on you. He's the one who preached the day of Pentecost. He's the one who basically everybody looked to as the leader. And he starts by saying, I now realize, because he was still learning. And then he preaches the gospel by telling Jesus' story. He doesn't doesn't start with a long list of doctrinal truths that these people need to believe. He start. I mean, there's. He assumes some things, but he doesn't reduce the gospel to a set of truth claims, of doctrinal statements, and he only uses in English. In, in I think it's in the NIV. This is, I counted it up in, but he used, all of the English translations are pretty close. In NIV, he used 225 words. 225 words. Before the Holy Spirit interrupted him. I don't know how long he was going to go, but the Holy Spirit interrupted him. There were no high pressure sales tactics, no playing on emotions. No fear tactics, no. So, now, I, I grew up, I grew up in church. Some of you have grown up in church, whether you on, on site or online, you, you've heard stuff that, frankly, we probably never should have heard. Oh, that's my opinion. Yeah, and, you know, like, 
Last week I was preaching at such and such a church and I, we gave the altar call and this guy didn't come. He walked out, the bus ran over him and I'm sure he's in hell tonight. Don't let that happen to you. Get yourself down here to the altar so you don't get hit by a bus and go to hell. Peter didn't say that to Cornelius. He didn't use fear and guilt to motivate Cornelius and all his Gentile friends to come down there. He didn't give them a long list of all the rules and laws that they had broken. He didn't sing a song like Justice I Am 16 times. Peter didn't need to manipulate their emotions. Why? I think I do know why that happens. Hang on to your hats. This is where your seatbelts need to be fastened. Every Gentile in that house knew what had happened. They knew Cornelius had had an angel come say, send for this guy. And every Jew who came with Peter knew that he had had a vision that told him to go with these people. Everyone in that room, that house, everybody in that meeting knew God was up to something and they were attending a divine appointment. They may have had absolutely, I'm sure, they had no idea what the Holy Spirit was up to. But they knew God was moving. They didn't need to be manipulated. They didn't need to be scared. They didn't need to be guilt-tripped into doing something. They were primed and ready for God to just now. Come on. What do we say to others to share the gospel? Jesus is the gospel so we just need to tell this story. It's not, the gospel is not a list of beliefs that people need to accept in order to be saved. The gospel never was a list of forbidden behaviors that people have to feel guilty about breaking. The gospel is Jesus. A person for us to believe in person for us to trust, a person for us to follow. Here's the sermon in a sentence. It's not, uh, well, frankly, it's not original with me because I took it straight out of the Bible. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives. Everyone. It has occurred to me that humans have always divided the world into two groups, us and them. Republicans and Democrats. Pro-choice, pro-life. Straight and gay. Name it. We have the groups. And God has been about the business of making one group, us. At the foot of the cross, there is one group, not two groups. There's one group, us. 
not believers and unbelievers, it's us. I want to invite you to think with me about the following questions. There, there's, there's some questions that I want us to think about. As we think about, I'm going to be asking the Holy Spirit for to speak to us individually and collectively. Um, they're inspired by, by Peter's description of Jesus' life, his summary of Jesus' life and ministry in Acts 10, verse 38. Uh, three questions, and I'm going to add one, a fourth, but the first one is, is this, am I going about doing good? I mean, that was one of the things that Peter said marked Jesus' life. He went about doing good. And before he, well, of course I am. Go look at Jesus' life. So I'm going to ask, the, reword that question just a little bit. Am I going about doing good like Jesus did? kind of brings us to the second question is my life a healing presence in the lives of others my life a healing presence in the life of others Question number three, does Holy Spirit have such access to me that through my sheer presence, he is able to deliver others from evil? Does Holy Spirit, does the Holy Spirit have such access to me that through my sheer presence, he is able to deliver others from evil?
here's the one I want to add. Not based on Jesus' life, but it's sparked by, by Peter and his, and his uh, circumcised friends. Who were astonished that the Holy Spirit would come on these Gentiles. What group or groups of people do I tend to exclude from God's kingdom family? What group or groups of people do I tend to exclude from God's kingdom family? Who do I tend to think of as them? said right before the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles everyone everyone who believes in Jesus receives just talk about this in an abstract way because the Holy Spirit doesn't let me just talk about these things in an abstract way. He always smacks me upside the head with a two-by-four. Doesn't do that to other people that I'm a stubborn, strong-willed brat. He has to get my attention, so I just need to give a testimony. What happens when I think about questions like that? To be honest, I've watched in dismay as fellow Christians fall in line with the divisions of our culture. We've been quick to demonize and block whole groups of people for not being like us. People outside the church, people inside the church, you know, it, and I've seen others do the exact opposite, just kind of go into the thought, the, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay kind of mindset. We claim to follow Jesus, but we don't love people as Jesus loves us. I said we. meant we. We still think in terms of us versus them. This week when I was thinking, you know, I've kind of got this down. Holy Spirit confronted me 
with my judgmental attitude towards judgmental Christians. Talk about irony. That's my two before. Annabella, go look in the mirror, Mark. So what do I do when the Holy Spirit convicts me of my bad attitude? What do I do when the Holy Spirit convicts me of completely missing the mark? What would you do? I'll tell you what I do. I grab a hold of a verse that I had to memorize a long, long time ago. And I use it again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. I don't make excuses. Although I want to. You know, everyone who believes receives. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives. And so, I said, yes, Holy Spirit, you are absolutely right. judgmental towards judgmental Christians. I have met the enemy and I are one. Not only do I need your forgiveness, I need your cleansing. He's still working on me. Yep, this may take a while, as I've looked at myself, and it's been going on for a really long time. I got a bad habit. I'll work on this for a while, but it's going to get taken care of. We will cleanse it. It will be taken care of. I will learn to love everybody. Way Jesus loves me. <coughs> because He'll help me. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, do not let us stagnate. Not allow us to become comfortable. Keep our eyes focused on Jesus. It is so easy to look around and go, I'm better than that. I'm better than them. Not like those people. But them and those 
aren't the standard. We're called to learn to love like Jesus. So get our eyes back on him. back on Jesus. It changes the power of his grace and mercy. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for uh, connecting with us. Connected online. Uh, if you have not already done so, please join the Champions of Hope uh, Facebook group using the link that's uh, in the description. Jesus sends us to follow him in giving our lives for the world, introducing others to the Holy Spirit's powerful love involves sometimes weeping and wrestling in prayer like Jesus. But we don't go alone. Go with Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. 